The Inform Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman is a presentation of Inform Fitness Studios, specializing in safe, efficient, personal high-intensity strength training. In each episode, Adam discusses the latest findings in the areas of exercise, nutrition, and recovery, the three pillars of his New York Times best-selling book, The Power of Ten. He aims to debunk the popular misconceptions and urban myths that are so prevalent in the fields of health and fitness. And with the opinions of leading experts and scientists, you'll hear scientific-based, up-to-the-minute information on a variety of subjects. We cover the exercise protocols and techniques of Adam's 20-minute, once-a-week workout, as well as sleep, recovery, nutrition, the role of genetics in the response to exercise, and much more. Hi everyone, Adam here. Welcome to an Informed Fitness Podcast Rewind. It's a listen back to our past interviews with some of our great high-intensity gurus, master trainers, doctors, PhDs, names like Martin Gabala from McMaster University, biomechanics expert Bill D. Simone, genetics expert Ryan Hall, Dr. Doug McGuff, author of Body by Science. And for this Rewind today, we have Doug Brignoli. On his website, Doug describes himself as a bodybuilder on the outside and a science nerd on the inside. His competitive career spans over 40 years and he has won numerous bodybuilding titles. His most recent book, The Physics of Fitness, is endorsed by nine PhD professors and is a must read if you're going to dig deep into the science and physics of strength training. So here in part one, Doug and I are going to talk about compound movements versus isolation movements. Always a controversial subject. We don't always agree on everything, but it's, it's a great discussion. Enjoy. So glad to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be it's, here. It's a real honor to uh, talk to somebody with your experience and expertise in this field. Uh, so, so Doug is a bodybuilder, right, Doug? Yes, I guess you could say that, although that's sort of like a small piece of what I do. Because exactly. there's a lot of bodybuilders that don't do what I do. Yeah. So what makes Doug so unique is that Doug is an intellectual bodybuilder, I guess you can call it. And he, he hasn't really uh, fallen prey to all the cultural and, and mythological aspects of bodybuilding that have existed for, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years and beyond. 100 years, actually, yeah. There you go. What I like about you, Doug, is as a bodybuilder, you, you debunk a lot of the myths that people have have had about bodybuilding. Like, uh, for example, we're going to get into a lot of things about this. Uh, but like, for example, you say, which is unusual for uh, the bodybuilding community, you say that varying exercises for the same body part is really not essential for muscle growth. So many popular exercises in bodybuilding are just downright dangerous and at the very least inefficient. You talk about why it's impossible that to uh, isolate your lower abs, for example. Right. And the myths go on and on that, that you talk about that we've been talking about, too. So it's nice, but, but no one listens to me really sometimes because, let's, you know, I, I'm not big and muscular. And what no, do I know? You're right. A title holder ends up getting more attention than a Ph.D. This is why I like talking to, to guys like you because you are – not following the culture, and still you've been a competitive and very successful bodybuilder. So can you just give us a little brief synopsis of, of your uh, bodybuilding history and, and some of your accomplishments, not just yeah. the bodybuilding, but also uh, as succinctly as possible, talk about your, your career as well. All right. Well, um, I, I started weight training when I was 14 because I was very skinny, and I just wanted to gain some muscle. And I was fortunate enough to be living 
about five blocks away from a gym that was owned by 410 Mr. Universe winner Bill Pearl. And I went there. I had no money, essentially, and we struck a deal, and I would go in there every Saturday and scrub the showers and do janitorial work in exchange for membership. And I started competing within a year. Um, 16 years old was my first contest. By the time I was 19, I had won Teenage California and Teenage America. At 22, I won Mr. California. At 26, I won my division of Mr. America and Mr. Universe. And I continued competing on and off uh, until I was 56, which is a 40-year span of competitions, longer than most people, for sure, who's, who've been in that sport. So along the way um, of all these years of competing, I was very analytical about you know what it is that constitutes a good exercise or a bad exercise. There has to be mechanical components and whatever those mechanical components are that could be deemed good or bad would naturally be consistent across the board. If incomplete range of motion is bad in one exercise, it'd be bad in all of them, for example. And bench press is one example of that, right? When you finish a bench press, your hands are far away from the center of your body. So if that's an incomplete range of motion anywhere else, why wouldn't it be there? So a lot of the things that I was realizing were very profound uh, and have names, technical names. And I would later discover them as I would go to cadaver dissections and read university textbooks and, and, and just sort of ponder sort of the correlation between the physics, the anatomy, the sociology, <laughs> the brainwashing that has you know, been happening through all these years that have led people to believe that certain things are just to be not questioned, like compound movements, and people will say, oh, you need a foundation in the powerless to bodybuild. Well, there's just no logic in that, really. I mean, a muscle doesn't know if it's working alone or if it's working at the same time other muscles are working. So I came out with this book about uh, a year ago called The Physics of Fitness, which basically explains biomechanics and explains what works and what doesn't work and why. And how physics and anatomy sort of join forces. And it's, I guess you could say it's rocking, making waves because it goes against conventional wisdom. Uh, you know, as far as I see it, I always see uh, approaching exercise and, and how to build a program for yourself uh, as coming at it from two fronts. One, you have the biomechanics front and then you have the physiology front. Right. So what I'd like to focus on initially because I do want to get into both fronts, but initially I want to get into this biomechanics front. And when I was first introduced to you, you had sent me a chapter of one of your books basically talking about compound movements versus isolation movements, which, which is really fascinating because uh, when we were talking about beliefs before and all these beliefs that exist in, in exercise culture, uh, one that can be traced back hundreds of years, like you said, is that the belief that compound movements, otherwise known as multi-joint, multi-muscle type movements, are generally better than simple isolation movements, single joint, single muscle right. movements. Now, I want to talk about how this belief got started, but before I do, just for people listening that don't know the terminology, uh, quickly explain the difference between a compound movement and a simple movement. As you said, a compound movement is a multi-joint, multi-muscle movement that some people refer to as functional, which is absurd because it suggests that something that isn't compound is dysfunctional. That would almost suggest that if you do isolation exercises, somehow your body isn't gonna be able to coordinate all of its various muscle strains at the same time. It's absurd. I mean, yes, it's true that if you're doing dead hang cleans, you get skilled 
at doing deadhead cleans. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can cross that over into something that doesn't look anything like a dead hand clean. Just means you're learning a skill. You're learning to coordinate all of the muscles that participate in that movement in a particular event. But it, but the idea that the, that it's a compound movement would then make you better able to use those participating muscles as a, as compared to isolation exercises has no logic in it whatsoever. So how did this get started? I mean, like, wh where did this fascination and, and this uh, reverence of compound movements get started? Well, it, it started, in fact, in my book, I talk about how once upon a time, um, without superior strength, as a man, you were in big trouble, right? You couldn't provide food for yourself. You couldn't protect yourself in battle. You couldn't provide for your family. You couldn't provide for your offspring. Today, you know, survival is about having knowledge, skills, you know, earning ability. This is how we survive today in a civilized society. But back then, none of that mattered. What mattered was literally your physical strength. And so what ended up happening was that they would, there would be like, you know, stories of her, whether it's Hercules or, you know, any of these people that has superior strength, Milo of Cretan, you know, he would carry a bull every day on his shoulders as daily exercise. And so it became this sort of like fabled thing where exhibitions of strength were really, really, really respected. And so what ended up happening was eventually became circus acts. There would be people that would hold a platform up with 16 people standing on the platform or a man lifting an elephant. And so nobody cared how strong each individual muscle was. What they cared was how much total the lift was. So but when bodybuilding came along, and by the way, in the early years of bodybuilding, it was considered vain. It was considered dishonorable to pursue aesthetics. Yeah, I remember uh, you, you saying that isolation exercises were regarded as vanity exercises. Well, uh, yeah. And it was, it was only focusing on one's appearance. Right, it, it, there's a, a magazine that was uh, actually a, several issues, had a banner at the bottom that said, weakness a crime, don't be a criminal. <laughs> well, what it might as well have said is, failing to exhibit strength is a crime. <laughs> So if you did a variety of exercises that were isolation exercises, you could be deemed a criminal because you weren't exhibiting a large lift at one time. Never mind that each individual muscle that's working in isolation might actually be working harder than it would be in a compound lift. So it just became that this sort of conventional wisdom that if you wanted to bodybuild, you had to start off with deadlifts and heavy squats and bent over barbell rows and overhead presses but if you look at the body as just a machine with of pulleys and levers and pivots, and then you, you realize that it's just a mechanism. I mean, it, you, wouldn't, you would never, let's say, look at, a, at, a, at an actual machine made out of steel and pulleys and, and somehow come to the conclusion that that machine would work better if it had multiple things working at one time than one. I mean, a machine is a machine, mm -hmm. right? And the body is a machine. And so if you, if you really want to train as efficiently as possible, meaning the lowest risk of injury and the maximum amount of loading for the energy and, and amount of weight used, isolation mm -hmm. exercises are actually better. Yes. So are you telling me then that uh, in your career as a bodybuilder, you avoided compound movements or, or and most of your training was done with isolation movements or, or you mixed it up? Well, I, I will tell you this, that I had a very, very good sense from the very beginning of what what felt natural or what didn't feel natural. Okay, so a squat, for example, is a compound exercise, but it involves basically two natural movements, hip extension and knee extension. 
Now, we can talk about how efficient that is in just a moment, but at least each of those two joints are doing what those joints do best. Right. Now let's look at an upright row. That is absolutely not true for an upright row. An upright row is a very contorted exercise, yep. which makes you twist your wrist sideways. Yep. Your deltoid does not end up where the deltoid would end up if you were doing a lateral abduction. And so I always tell people, like, if you look at someone doing an upright row and you just imagine straightening their arms when they're atop, you go, oh, guess what? That pretty much ends where a side raise would end. The only thing you've done now is, is bent the elbow and inverted it forward. Yeah. And there's, there's no benefit to the delta for doing that. It's just a less comfortable movement. So I avoided the compound movements that seemed unnatural. Sure. But I did do the compound movements like squat that seemed natural without joint distortion. But then you can get into things like, like if you look at a, let me just get into a little tiny bit of physics here. I won't dwell on it too much, but um, in physics, any lever that is parallel to the direction of resistance, and right away people are glazing over, I think, right? As I say that, um, like a lamppost is vertical because a lamppost is vertical to gravity. And so it's balanced over its base. But if you tried to anchor that lamppost at a 45 degree angle, you'd have to bolt it down to the ground with a lot more force, a lot more bolts, because now it wants to fall. Okay, so a, a lever that mm -hmm. is parallel to gravity or whatever resistance is, is going to be a zero neutral lever and one that is perpendicular to gravity or whatever you happen to be using for resistance is gonna be what I call a 100% lever, a maximally active lever. So when you look at a squat, and you realize that the lower leg is the operating lever of the quadricep, and you realize that it doesn't even reach a 45-degree angle, you say, well, it's actually closer to neutral than it is to fully active. It's more of a, more of a glute exercise than, than a quadricep well, exercise. Well, so let's, we'll look at that in just a moment. So what I want to say is, you know, if you're doing, a, let's say, a 200-pound squat, you've got 200 pounds pressing down on your spine. That's the cost. Right, And the benefit is 30% of that is going on your quad. That's not a good trade-off. 30% benefit in all this spinal compression. As opposed so then, to, let's say, a knee extension. Right. So, so then someone would say, well, yeah, okay, maybe the lower leg does actually only go to about a 30-degree angle from neutral, but the femur does get vertical. I mean, does get horizontal. Mm -hmm. right? It does get perpendicular. And I go, yes, but look what's happening with the lower leg. The lower leg is doubling under the femur, right? It's doubling mm -hmm. back under the femur, which is effectively shortening the femur, yeah. right? So when we talk about mechanics, there's a thing called the moment arm. And the moment arm happens when you draw a vertical line straight up from, the say, the heel, straight up, and straight up through the hip joint. And you realize that instead of being the length of a regular femur, it's about half the length of a regular femur. So yes, you're getting an active femur, but a very shortened femur. And someone says, well, how can we make that better? Well, ironically, the way you make the femur more effective is by taking that lower leg and instead of having it be an inward angle, having it straight, be it. straight down. And then you've eliminated the quad. By working both, you're compromising both. Right. That's a good argument for why it's better to isolate because as soon as you try to combining a glute and a quad exercise, you literally compromise both. You got a percentage. And this is all about percentages, by the way. When someone says, 
you right. know, is your, what is your method all about? I basically say, well, it's about efficiency, which is about Not, percentages. Yeah. The first thing I'll, we should probably do is define what a natural movement is. If, if we go by the, 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 the fact that all muscles pull toward their origins, okay, that is an absolute fact. The muscle can do nothing other than pull towards its origin. If you are a pectoral muscle uh, fiber origin standing on a sternum and you're holding that pectoral fiber that goes across the chest, crosses the shoulder joint, ties into the upper end of the humerus, the only thing you can do is pull toward you. You're going to pull that humerus toward you. Now, whether that humerus actually does come toward you depends on whether or not other pectoral fibers are also pulling. And so maybe collectively we'll pull in a slightly different direction. But I can only pull toward me. So the most natural movement would be taking a limb toward, directly toward it's that origin. muscle origin. The other way of looking at natural movement is to say, how have our joints evolved? And for what reason have they evolved that way? So once upon a time, we were quadrupeds. We walked on all fours. Little by little, we started walking slightly more upright, which meant that we, when we were quadrupeds, we were pushing straight down with our pecs. And as we got more and more upright, we were pushing progressively more downward, right? But we never had to push upward. There was never a reason, there was never a, a, a need to push toward an inclined angle. There were no inclined benches in the early days of hominids, <laughs> right? And, and the only way to create an inclined angle would, would have been to elevate your upper body so that your head was much lower than your feet. And there would have been no functional, purposeful reason to do that. So our shoulder joint, nor our musculature, has evolved to perform an inclined movement. It has evolved to perform forward and downward decline movements. So this is how I typically say, let's start off by saying what is a natural movement, something that we have evolved to do. An overhead tricep extension is not something that we had to do with that shoulder joint on a regular basis. If the objective is to work the triceps, you can work it with the shoulder joint in a much more natural position, that being with your upper arm alongside your, your, your torso. Anyway, so what I say is this is, you know, since my background and my focus is bodybuilding, what I try to do is I say, how can we get the most bang for the buck in terms of muscle development? Well, the best way we do that is by be working in as pure a form as possible. I mean, by making that lever go directly to and exclusively to the origin of that muscle. So it's the most says, efficient way of using that muscle. Yeah. Now, if you do that, the strength you gain in that those pectoral fibers can be applied in any way. They can be applied when you're washing dishes. They can be applied when you're juggling. They can be applied in, in a million different ways. It's, it, it would be ridiculous to assume that it would only work for exercises that were similar to the ones you did in the gym. It is functional, right? There's no way that a muscle can get stronger and then not coordinate with other muscles when the time comes. But when someone says, so are you saying that we should never do compound exercise? I say, no, because if you combine, let's say, uh, uh, let's say you're doing a, a, a curling with a step up. Okay, you're stepping up and at the same time you're curling. Okay, well, you've got more muscles working. You've got more oxygen demand. You've got more cardiovascular stimulation. There's benefit there. If you're working only in isolation, you know, less, so if you're trying to combine some right. strength training with some cardiovascular and some proprioception training, which is right. basically coordination, right. that's a good thing to do. But if your goal is to, is to build muscle then you're going to care less about proprioception. Yeah, well, that's why that, that's why uh, we do both. That's why when when we 
program most most of our clients workouts and when we recommend people how to work out we like mixing both in we like we right. like the efficiency of the isolation movements and really working that muscle to its truest function truest right. tracking its truest function uh, and like you said i mean there's no there's no doubt that doing a knee extension tracks that function of the quadriceps a lot better than a squat would or even a leg press would but I also take in consideration what you were mentioning before also. I mean, a compound movement is metabolically much more right. demanding. Absolutely. And, and you go from exercise to exercise doing compound and it's, and movements. It, and, it, and it's more athletic. Right. There's, there's yeah. more athleticism that is required, and there's a, that's a coordination advantage. And I, and I see physiological benefits from pushing the energy systems drastically. And, 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 and the best way to push energy systems yes. to their max is through compound movements. So, so and, and, as and, long and, as those and, compound movements are, are, are generally safe. And yeah. I'm, not putting, I'm not putting barbells on or recommending right. people put barbells over their shoulders right. to do a compound type movement. Right. Uh, like, like you mentioned, I know you mentioned this stuff. There are other ways of doing squats or, 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 or compound uh, leg movements without putting uh, huge Huge levers on your shoulders with, with lots of weight yeah. on yeah. both putting ends. A, putting a metal barbell on, at the very top of your spinal column <laughs> is not a good idea. The Leaning Tower of Pisa has its greatest stress at the base opposite the lean. Yeah. That's the lower back. A purist, someone like, let's say me, who just says, you know, I want to get from point A to point B as forcefully and dramatically and as quickly as I possibly can then I'm going to exclude the stuff that isn't maximally productive, right? But when we're dealing with the public as trainers, we also have to realize that there's a compliance issue. There's a motivation issue. If we're too monotonous, <laughs> um, monotonous, by the way, is certainly um, productive, but it makes it less fun. And there are some people with a psychology, psychological profile that just absolutely need some variety, or else they will get so bored, they will end up quitting. If you were to lay out in the sun every day for 30 minutes, and after doing this for two months, you think you're plateauing. And so you think you need variety. So you decide that you're going to go try some incandescent light instead. <laughs> or you decide you're going to try some fluorescent light, or infrared light, or neon light, right? And you realize... No, because these aren't all equal forms of stimulation. If you've plateaued from being in the sun, it doesn't mean that sunlight or UVB light or UV light isn't the best way to tan. It just means that you need a little break, take three days to six days off, and then when you come back, everything's fresh again, <laughs> right? So now let's compare that to exercise. Let's say someone says, you know, I've been doing these tricep pushdowns with the cable for the last three months. I'm, I think I'm gonna switch to parallel bar dips. Well, guess what? The tricep is still doing the exact same thing. The tricep extends the elbow. That's all it does. Just not as efficiently. Far from it, actually. Far from it. So it's more, um, it's more, it's more stress on your anterior delt and, yes. uh, than so, it is your tricep. So why do it? And this is, this is what I explain to people is um, getting back to what we were talking about before about parallel levers versus perpendicular levers. When you see someone doing a bench dip or a parallel bar dip, and you notice that their forearm is almost vertical. It only breaks from the neutral vertical position by about 11 degrees. Which so means the tricep, which, which, which means which is, your tricep is only getting about 11%. Right, right. right. So here's the math I do on that. As I say, if you're a 180 pound guy and you wanna figure out how much load each tricep is gonna get, 
you say, okay, I'm 180 pounds. I'm going to divide that by two arms. That's 90. The length of your forearm is about a 12 to 1 ratio. So you have a magnification of 12. So you say 90 times 12 times 11% active lever gives you about 119 pounds of load per tricep at a cost of 180 pounds of effort. But if that same person were to lie on a flat bench with a pair of 20-pound dumbbells, Skull where, the forearm, yeah. where the piriform does actually cross gravity at 100%, you do the same math, you say 20 pounds times 12 times 100% is 240 pounds of load per tricep at a total cost of 40 pounds. So this is efficiency. Why would you bother doing an exercise that costs you 180 pounds of effort but only load your tricep with 119 pounds when you can do 40 pounds of cost and 240 pounds of load. And it's not like it's working a different head of the tricep. Right. All three heads are working in both ways. It's just that they're, they have drastically different efficiencies. All right, so let me, let me, let me translate that for somebody, for example, <laughs> because you know, there are gonna be like most of our listeners that didn't understand a word you just said. This is the bottom line. We're trying to work the triceps, and uh, the triceps don't function as well for that barbell dip as it does for the other exercise that you talked about, the skull crushes. And the thing is this. Let's make an analogy just so you understand this. We use word processors nowadays to write letters. And uh, just for variety's sake, we're getting bored with our word processors. We, we decide to dust off our old corona. Right. Now, that's a much less efficient uh, system, but we're just doing it because what the hell, I'm nostalgic and I want to go back to the old days right. of using a typewriter. But it's not going to do the job as well. It's right. just not. It's, it can still do the job, right? Yeah. It does the job but much less efficiently. If you're doing it for fun and you understand that you're trading down and yeah. you, you're willing to accept right. that trade down, great. One but don't think they're equal. Right. And I want to add one more thing to that. Now, in the case of the typewriter and the word processor, you're not taking any risk to get injured. You're just wasting your time. And right. if you want to have fun and go back to the old Corona days, have fun and type a letter with an old Corona and, and kind of go down memory lane. But in the case of what you're talking about, choosing an inferior exercise is not only less, less efficient sometimes, but it's also much more dangerous. Because yeah. in, in the case of parallel dips, all right, you are putting undue stress on the anterior delt right. and the pecs for that matter because they're being stretched in an unnatural position. Right. They're not bringing the humerus towards your middle of your torso. Toward the sternum, right. They're going up. So, so not only is your deltoids, your anterior delts taking a strain that's unnecessary, so is your pecs. Yeah. All yeah. for a very inefficient way of working your, delt, uh, your, yeah. your triceps. Doesn't make sense. Why well, if, do if you, if you ask the average person, why are you doing parallel bar dips, they would say for pecs and triceps. But ironically, as you said, the pecs and triceps are getting far less work than the front deltoids, and that's not the objective of the exercise, and there are far better front deltoid exercises. All right, so uh, just choose your exercises carefully. We've been saying this forever. All right, that was part one with Doug Brignoli on the Inform Fitness Podcast Rewind. I hope you enjoyed it. In part two, Doug and I are going to continue our discussion on static versus dynamic exercise, along with speed of movement and specific sports training concepts. This has been the Inform Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman. For over 20 years, Inform Fitness has been providing clients of all ages with customized personal training designed to build strength fast. And now Adam and his staff would be delighted to train you virtually. Just visit informfitness.com. 
testimonials, blogs, and videos on the three pillars, exercise, nutrition, and recovery.